Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. And I'm Vince, the co-host. And this is The Lighthouse Lowdown. Cue Boathorn. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how I want to do my intro. Vince and I had some technical difficulties with audio. Apparently, you can't just buy a really nice microphone and expect it to work the way you, you want it to. Minor setback. So... We're using the same audio as we have the last two episodes, but eventually it'll improve someday. That's the dream. We're also sitting across from each other this time, so I can see his face when I say dumb stuff. <laughs> and I can react to the uh, the comments made. Someday we'll get uh, all mic'd up, get it correct. Yeah, unless we cover ourselves in blankets, as you've done partially. It's a small blanket covering. Supposedly it's going to help with the audio, so let's do it. We'll figure it out. So what's our subject today? Today is going to be the Bolivar Point Lighthouse, which that is how you pronounce it, because I looked online, and Texas has a multi-page set of pronunciations for cities and locations in the state. So what, Bol- It's like Oliver, but with a B. Bolivar, B. Oliver, gotcha. <laughs> in the tech, different parts of Texas pronounce it differently? No, it's just, uh, it's... A Spanish last name, so it'd be like mm. Bolivar or something. Yeah, I'm not going to lean into that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to make sure that I was pronouncing it correctly, but it is Bolivar. Right. Um, but I'm going to start with my history bullet, which is now what I'm going to call a history buoy uh, to stay on brand. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just float that out there. Yeah. Thank you for that. You are also <laughs> staying on brand. <laughs> so light ships come up in the episode today. So I'm going to cover lightships, just to give a little definition, and how long they were in use, because they're not really anymore. So lightships were uh, stationary, basically surrogate lighthouses. So they put them where they couldn't have a lighthouse, or there was like shallow water, or marking sandbars, river mouths, bay entrances, anything like that. Mm. They're usually painted bright red, and they have large white block letters on the side that says the name of the port or where they're stationed, and we'll have one or two tall posts on it with a beacon on top. And they actually do use Fresnel lenses on top, so they're, they're like little lighthouses that are floating, and they're anchored down in one spot. They were built from 1820 to 1985, and then I guess they just stopped using them. I didn't see a reason for that, other than they build lighthouses where they need them, and the light chips are kind of like temporary thing. But there's only a total of 120 ever placed on American coastlines and oh. in the Great Lakes. And the, the most number in service at one time was 56. So they're just not, they're not very common, but they used them. So 85, 1985 was the last year they built one? Yeah. That was the last record. So is it still in service? Like, do they, do they have them available somewhere? They have them, but I believe they're more like for you to tour. They're like, oh, cool, come check it out. Gotcha. But yeah. Oh, they usually equipped with warning bells for when it's foggy. And they have a reserve light. And like I said, there's one or two posts. The second post would always be a reserve light for if the first one goes out. Mm. So those are light ships. That's cool. Yeah. And is after a certain amount of time, I think it was when the Coast Guard took over, they gave names to all of the light ships that had been built that were just like, what's it called? Alpha numerical. Yeah. Light ship A was built in 1820. And then it just yeah. goes on from there. So, But there are some that have actual names, not in this episode, but Aurora Borealis was one that was in... Louisiana for a lighthouse that I'll mention briefly. Isn't that like the Northern Lights? Yeah. Is, is that so Louisiana Northern Lights? 
All right. They could have changed that up, I guess. I don't know, like Shreveport. I don't know. I, like the, the, the big oil spill, the Exxon Valdez or Valdez yeah. in Alaska. I, I once asked, where where was that? Was, uh, Valdez. It's Alaska, named appropriately. But Aurora Borealis in Louisiana, I gotcha. They should have named it Gumbo. Gumbo, something. <laughs> crawfish boil. <laughs> jambalaya. I don't know. Lightship jambalaya. Anyway, so on to the episode for today, talking about Bolivar Point Lighthouse. And so this is taking us to Galveston, Texas, the Bolivar Peninsula, which the only way to reach it is by ferry. So it's like a little island separated from Galveston Island. That's mm. It's on one side of the entrance to the bay. Okay. Also, for everyone who may know where big cities are in Texas, but not small cities, it's southeast from Houston on the Gulf of Mexico. Let's sit in the scene. It's flanked by two keeper dwellings lifted by eight-foot iron piles. And the lighthouse has been unlit for almost a century. It's 117 feet tall and is completely black. I'll read a little snippet I put in here. Ominous. (laughs) Rising over the Bolivar Peninsula grass looms a jet-black lighthouse, once white and black-striped but darkened by time and salty sea air. Or is it from its dark history and spooky vibes? So, <laughs> I put that as what I was going to say first, and I was like, I'm not going to do that in a serious way. <laughs> All right, so we're get, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it, but it's the, it's the blacked out. Like there's yeah. the beacon, and then the whole tower is black. Yes. Okay. And the top, so not... the top little, uh, the little crown on top of the lighthouse is white. It's another type of patinaed over okay. time to white and the rest of it went black that's cool i'll look this up i also a note to everyone that i now have a website and uh, i'll link it in my show notes but i'll post a picture of the lighthouse so you can see it and i'll also have a picture of franal lenses and sources to um all the information i get in this episode and in my first two episodes a note that hundreds of people have died around the lighthouse and several ghosts are seen lingering in its iron walls which I will also talk about. That's actually kind of the main thing I talk about in this is uh, the kind of misfortunes that have befallen the Galvestinians around Yeah, this thing is pretty cool looking. Yeah, it's wicked, isn't it? Oh, man. I'm looking at Google Images of Bolivar Mm -hmm. Lighthouse. Uh, So I'm going through, and a bunch of them are modern, showing the black. And then the first one I see of the original paint scheme with black and white is like this creepy black and white photo. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Roll on. Roll on. Enhance it so it looks. Ooh, and then here's one off kilter. (laughs) Ooh, they took it sideways so it's spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'll go into the history. Uh, The thing is, the lighthouse is also, it's had a lot of bad stuff happen, but in the bad stuff, good things like it's been a safety zone in the midst of all the horror of what has gone down at this place. Classic lighthouse vibes. Exactly. They're just trying to bring bring people home. (laughs) So there's been two lighthouses in 1845. The Republic of Texas set aside $7,000 to build a lighthouse on Galveston Island. And then shortly after that, U.S. annexed Texas and in 1847 set aside $15,000 for a lighthouse in Galveston. They moved the location 
where they were going to build it from Fort Point Galveston Island, which was on the other side of the bay, to Bolivar Point. So they just switched it to the other side. I don't think there was mm-hmm. a purpose for that, except for that maybe they anticipated that more ships would be coming from the north side of the coast than from the south side. Uh, in 1851, construction begins after delays due to negotiations with the current landowner. So he was just being a pain in the ass. <laughs> so it took them four years to get this guy to uh, have some sort of a settlement. That's pretty fast for government and construction combine. That's, that's pretty quick. I mean, this was a long time ago, so it's, I bet there was less. The eminent domain. Yeah. Government takes your land type of thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Plus, Texas just joined, and so I don't. I think it'd be there'd be a lot more to talk about than just being like, yeah, yeah. "Hey, they're hard. They're hard to mess with." So yeah, Texans are pinheads. <laughs> I'm a Texan, so I don't take it personally. <laughs> the lighthouse was built to guide ships into Galveston Bay, which at the time was the largest city in Texas, and mm. I believe one of the largest cities in the U.S. So it was flourishing, and it was the first place to have like uh, street lamps come up, becoming civilized, becoming yeah. a large growth. So big port city, uh, probably oil for street lamps and mm-hmm. business. Where were the ships coming from? All over the place? Yeah. There's, okay. there's connections everywhere. I'll talk about it later too. But during this time that they were building, it only took a year, but uh, during the time they were building and when they were still doing negotiations, the light ship was deployed to mark the area, which was Lightship XX. It probably had a different name, but over time it's been lost, so the Coast Guard gave it... Huh? Dos Equis. <laughs> yeah, Lightship Beer. <laughs> uh, this was in service from 1849 to 18, 1870, and the fate is unknown. So someone may have bought it and keeps it now or it may have been so awesome. destroyed or wouldn't it be cool if you just had money and you're like i'm gonna buy this old light ship all 1840s yeah it's like i'm just gonna park I'm gonna it buy an 1840s light ship to be so sick lake of the ozarks just blazing with that thing <laughs> nice pontoon jerry everyone would see you coming from a mile away have a frenal lens <laughs> rotating on top uh, so Construction took a year and is made entirely of iron sections that were cast in Baltimore and shipped to Galveston uh, to be constructed. And they painted it with red and white bands. So I believe it was two two red bands and the rest of it was white. Yeah. It was lit with 18 lamps and each had a 21-inch reflector and they lit it around Christmas Day. Shortly after that, the district lighthouse engineer and harbor pilots complained of the weak, the weakness of the, the lamps and the lamps, reflectors. Yeah. And uh, that the lighthouse was too short because the first one they built wasn't 117 feet tall. Um, I didn't make a note about how tall it was. So they, they installed a third order frontal lens, which was supplied by the lighthouse board. And I read a little bit about that. And they were in use from 1852 to 1910. And then it became the lighthouse service. And then it, it became part of the Coast Guard. So kind hmm. of interesting. But they put in the third order of frontal lens and actually added an extra 24 feet of iron sections, which was completed in 1858. So iron and then iron original construction, the addition was vertical, more iron? Yeah. So they lifted okay. it, yeah. They just added okay. 24 feet to the top. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, but that took them a solid, like, seven years to get that done. So oh, my gosh. There was complaints right away about the quality of the lighthouse, and it took them a while to get around to it. But the first lighthouse keeper was Aaron Burns, and this was only for two years at $600 a year. Aaron Byrne wasn't the one who uh, wanted to stick around here. And I noticed that a lot of the, like, if you look at lighthouse keeper history on lighthouses, they don't, a lot of them don't stick around for very long. They're like there for a year or like three years or something. And then there's a couple that stay for 20 years. So yeah. I think it's just uh, a What, what is the average person that is a lighthouse keeper? Like what else do they do in their life? I mean, I know you mentioned sometimes they run in families. Sometimes it's, you know different individuals for a long period of time or how to I'm not sure if they have a life outside of lighthouse keeping because Bolivar Point Lighthouse was only reachable by ferry and uh, oh. so they didn't have a lot of people around and they they ended up buying groceries and things for like one month at a time so they weren't going out and doing other things or had office like homesteading yeah plus they got that mercury going on those mercury pools so <laughs> Yeah, right. Maybe that's why they didn't stick around for very long. They're like, I'm out of here. Three years later, Texas joins the other southern states in seceding from the Union, which marks the demise of the first lighthouse because during war, lighthouses give away positions of ports and landfall, and they also warn of hazards that you'd normally want your enemy to not know about. Run aground. Right. Lighthouses were almost always darkened during the war and sometimes they'd have them flash for maybe just a few minutes per day just so that people on your own side that are out there still know where the lighthouses are but only during certain times but this one was dismantled um, because iron the price of iron skyrocketed and uh, they used it for weapons and armor on ships mm-hmm. so the first lighthouse was took it all the way down yeah nothing left They've never found any piece of it, which is why they're assuming there's no record of it. But since they haven't found any bit of this lighthouse, they're assuming that's what it was used for. It's because it was com- made completely of iron. So, of course, they were going to be like, oh, we yeah. can just take this down. And yeah, not a lot of those uh, Southern Civil War warships are still around. <laughs> so uh, I can see why. So after the war, a 34-foot wooden tower was built that was temporary. And it was lit with fourth-order lens in 1865. And then five years later, Congress approves $40,000 for a new light station. That includes new buildings and, like, new oil house and everything. And the lighthouse board goes with Louisiana's... I didn't put the pronunciation on here. Passe-Loutre? It's French, and so obviously I'm butchering it. But um, it's another lighthouse that I was talking about in Louisiana... Which it, the name stands for Pass Beyond, and it was originally Pass a la Lutre, meaning otter pass, because there was a bunch of otters that lived there. I mm. thought that was funny. But this one was 117 feet tall, and it was a brick lighthouse that had iron, like an iron sheath on it. Okay. I said they put forward $40,000 for it, and the light tower was $26,000. I mean, they had $14,000 for this keeper's dwelling, so it must have been bopping. If the tower only took 26. Especially out of wood, man. I know. Had to have been several stories tall. Probably had a nice deck on it. <laughs> a little attic space. They're like, we need keepers to stay for more than a couple of years. So let's make this a, just like a mansion where you want to be. Three bedroom, two bath, 3,000 square foot. <laughs> There's a pool in the living unit. room. <laughs> 
Sauna Outback. Right. So this one was painted black and white horizontal bands, two black, three white. And they painted it this way to make it a distinctive day mark. So you'd be able to use it for uh, navigation during the day as well as during the night. And it had a nine-foot concrete base and was 52,000 candle power. And that uh, shortly after that, the third order franal lens was lit in 1872. And they immediately had complaints about the brightness of the lighthouse. Once again, failing. Calveston failing. <laughs> and so the district's lighthouse engineer went and did a like an analysis on it. And he went and checked it out. And he said the lens was defective. So it was cloudy. And it had a smoky appearance. And little to no magnifying power is what he put in wow. his report. So 1882, a second order lens was lit. Sailors around the area said that anchor lights on ships were more brilliant than the lighthouse. So they're basically just like dissonant. Scathing. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the effectiveness of the tower's light was not the only problem at the station because we had assistant keeper Edson Brace complained that the head keeper, Horace Crockett, was an, a drunken, partly demented man, end quote who had threatened physical violence while Crockett charged Brace of failing to maintain a proper light and exposing himself to a passing train. (laughs) (laughs) What a mentor. Talk about an internship. They're both just trying to take each other down. So the district inspector came and investigated, and shortly after that, Brace resigned and Crockett retired to operate a store he owned in Port Bolivar. At least Crockett was happy. (laughs) Apparently. Exposing yourself to a passing train. That's pretty funny. And that's a very specific thing to accuse someone of, so I'd believe him. He probably had a great time. Like, it was probably, there might be a book written, you know, autobiography, something about the years on Port Bolivar. Yeah. You know. And then he just goes to his store in an old age, he just tells a story about showing his ass to the train. <laughs> I like it. So after that, um, it was late 1894, Harry Clybourne transfers from the lighthouse's twin in Louisiana and uh, comes to this lighthouse. And he was known as the best keeper in the district. He actually did this. Yeah. No, no. Harry Clybourne. Harry. Okay. Mr. Clybourne. He was there for 24 years. So he's one of these good guys that just make it their whole life. Mm -hmm. And he was there until he died. It was his new life. So his wife, Virginia Clybourne said, quote, a life at the lighthouse was very lonely and friendless. There is very little visiting because travel is non-existent from the point to Galveston. We pass most of our time by reading books. So she's basically like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Why Isolation. did you drag me here? Um, and I think they were pretty old, or not pretty old, but they were middle-aged by this point. So I think it was more of a... Although he worked in lighthouses, it seems like, for a long time before that. He was the best keeper in the district and came from another lighthouse so she said he lived there 24 years and he died there how old was he i don't know so back in the day i'm expecting they weren't as old so right well let me look it up and he was 60 years okay he was 59 virginia was saying that life here was boring and uneventful but it wouldn't be for long because shortly after that in august 27th in 1900 we have a tropical storm detected over the atlantic Here's where I'm about to go into my whole spiel about this dingbat, Willis Moore, which I was telling you about the other day. I came mm-hmm. in while you're working on my car, and I'm all angry. <laughs> Willis. Gosh. Willis. On September 3rd, Cuba is hit with this tropical storm. And yeah. they listed it as, like, like it wasn't so bad, but it still pushed trains, uh, train tracks off 
they oh lost train tracks from this and leveled buildings and everything. And that was still verified as a tropical storm, not a hurricane. Cuba must have it rough. Huh? Cuba must have it rough. Cuba is the hurricane just punching bag of the oh, world. Shit. I mean, it makes sense, but they're like, yeah, it wasn't so bad. You know, we got some yeah. train tracks ripped out of the earth. And some of the city is gone, but. <laughs> Could have been yeah, worse. I mean, minor. We've seen worse. We know our business. And the storm intensifies after it hits the Gulf. So it, it like it left Cuba and just immediately mm-hmm. it was like hurricane. And then shortly after that becomes major hurricane. They had a following a track and it just hits hits the Gulf and just puffs out its chest for the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, or Galveston. I know. So this one ended up being a Category Four hurricane, and that means. So the categories of hurricanes weren't weren't established. Like we didn't start yeah. calling them category hurricanes until way later than this, but they estimated that it was a category 4 hurricane because it had uh, 130 mile per hour sustained winds, so not even like wind gusts. Category 4 forecasts indicate. catastrophic damage. It says category 1 2 3 4 and next to it it says like little damage or whatever. So it's like a predictive index. Yeah. It's predicted to have catastrophic damage. Cat 4. Yeah, and there's Category 5 after that, but it's not much worse than Category 4. It has the same sort of layout for what's going to happen to the people that mm. are subjected to it. And so um, it's pretty bad. They both say yeah. catastrophic damage. <laughs> oh, catastrophic is a strong word. And it lists that even well-built frame houses are expected to be destroyed. And the storm was to be named the Great Storm of 1900, the Galveston Hurricane, or to Galveston citizens, they just simply call it the Storm, with a capital S. So, the storm had landfall on September 8th. So, what was their preparation for this? Because at this point, weather forecasting was in its infancy, but it still existed. And so, a record of the storm hitting Cuba exists from the Weather Bureau, which was the precursor to today's National Weather Service. Mm-hmm. And History.com has an article detailing the way that the preparation for this storm went to shit because of like human pride and jealousy. Willis Moore. <laughs> Willis. It prevented any kind of warning from going out to the citizens of Galveston, which is cringeworthy in the face of the death toll from the storm, which I'll talk about. Oh. So look, where where is Willis? What is he in this in this role? Let's so, pick that up. I'll talk about him. I'll start by saying uh, at this time the Cubans were the best in the world at predicting hurricane tracks because I told you Cuba's the punching bag of hurricanes, and so they were really good at predicting when they were going to hit, so that they could prep their citizens for. Mm-hmm catastrophic damage <laughs> so they noticed after this tropical storm passed that it would potentially become much more, more violent but in 1898 which was two years before this the spanish-american war happened and u.s gained temporary control over cuba and sentiments were not great on either side because half of america didn't want this war and cuba was half those that were rebelling to gain independence from spain and half the people mm-hmm. didn't care about yep. that so it was just kind of like a thing, like sentiments were not good and since so since the 1850s meteorology was a product of jesuit priests in cuba it's kind of like the birth of meteorology um, not the birth but they advanced it much more uh, modern like what we have today and the bellin observatory was the most advanced in the world founded by father vignes and father vignes wanted to help humankind by understanding how to predict these horrible storms and where better to do that than in cuba so that's where this observatory was okay yeah 
in the observatory, he had descriptions of clouds cross-reference to instrument readings from ships and in the inside of the observatory. And he would jot down like snippets of conversations with ship captains, and he would bring in telegraph reports and newspaper clippings. And this allowed for an understanding of cloud formations and what that meant for what the severity of the storm was going to be that they were okay. anticipating. And then using those theories, Father Vignes built a model and could accurately assert that a hurricane had formed, how far away it was, how fast it was moving, path tracking, and making predictions. And then, after he did all of this, he published it in all newspapers so that ordinary people could understand what he was working on and what that meant for them. So, he was awesome. He was yeah. just trying to help the world. Vignes. Yes, Vignes. Father Vignes. Soon, instead of just publishing in newspapers, he had a telegraphic network of storm observers working the entire Caribbean, and they would gather reports from every kind of colonial and independent government around this, so Spanish, British, French, Danish, Dutch, Dominican, Venezuelan, and American. So America was part of this. They, they were receiving these reports and giving right. information, so everyone was piecing together what they had to track storms. And... Early network. Right. Yeah. Everything about Caribbean weather went through Father Vignes in Havana, which is where this observatory was in Cuba, and traveled through telegraph weather networks in which the United States also participated. I'm just making a note that the U.S. had access to this information that Vignes was giving out. And then we have Willis Moore, who believed all of this to be boo hockey. <laughs> I have never heard that. Boo hockey? What is that? Did you make that up? No! Spell it. I just, I typed it the way it sounds. B-O-O-H-O-C-K-Y. Buhaki. Oh my God. <laughs> A watered down version of bullshit. Yeah. Okay. All right. I guess I could have said bullshit. Roll on with the buhaki. Moore wanted to kind of just, I don't know. He, so he was one of the people who was mad at Cuba. Just in general. He just okay. hated them. Post-war. Yeah. He, he believed that Cuba was not smart that these were uneducated people and that mm -hmm. the things that they were sending out, all of this great information about hurricanes was just them trying to incite panic in everybody over small stuff. So he sends a corrupted man, one of his friends who also believes what he believes, to the American weather station in Cuba. And this man reports back that Cubans were uneducated and they had made up everything and they were attempting to incite panic in the world for all this stuff. So like in, in like in general over a period of time or just for this one storm event? Just everything. That, okay. that oh, we should definitely Spread, not. Spread, yeah. smear the name. Yeah. yeah. Be like, we should not be taking information from these people because they're just, they're just trying to scare everyone. Like, none, all of this information is baseless. So um, Moore has connections to the U.S. War Department. And the War Department is where weather predictions were coming from, or like right. communication with Cuba and all of that. So Moore goes to the U.S. War Department and requested that they block any and all weather predictions from Cuba. And they're like, sure. Why not? Havana in Cuba would have to report directly to Washington, and Washington would decide what information to give New Orleans and the rest of the Gulf Coast, which was Moore. <laughs> so he gets to intercept all this information. The government gets to filter yeah. science before it gets to civilian. Okay. And Moore is sitting there going, this all is fake, so I'll decide what we send out to the people. Right. Fake news. Yeah. And he also sent out that it was illegal to put the words hurricane and tornado in weather predictions. Okay. Because they're too scary, I guess. So we're going to have kind of have, a like, whirlpool. A swirling of things. It's like a, you know, but... 
you know. Started with a T, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Everyone's reading the newspapers like, oh, what? what is this saying? It's in a word search. <laughs> so September 3rd, the observatory recognized the tropical storm that had, was not a hurricane yet that was hitting Cuba. And as it passed over, one of the workers in the observatory put that he saw a, quote, big halo around the moon. The halo mm. did not dissipate, which is an indicator of a hurricane. And he said, at dawn, the sky turned red, a deep red. Oh, okay. So he's just watching this go away from Cuba. And he's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like Building in power. Socket. So that signaled uh, that the storm had increased in intensity, formed a structure, and using Vignes' model, seemed to be headed right for the Texas Gulf Coast. Mm. So they were correct in this. But Moore made his own prediction that the storm would recurve and hit Florida, which it's possible. And he wrote this whole description of what he was thinking. And he's like, oh, well, when it leaves Cuba, it's going to recurve because of um, high pressure over here. And it's going to push it up into Florida. Which, so he's not baseless. He's just no, wrong. he is possible. But at that time, there was this pit of low pressure in the Gulf of Mexico, which mm. pulled the storm in there instead of pushing it off elsewhere. Right. So he could have been right. But with Vignes' model, you... They saw that it was heading for the Gulf, and so they're like, here, this is the trajectory. And he was just like, you know, that's impossible. So he actually said is that it's impossible because there'd be recurve, so that wouldn't happen. Two days later, on Wednesday, September 5th, the Galveston Daily News ran a tiny 27-word squib in its weather section, uh, which says, quote, a tropical disturbance was moving over western Cuba and headed for the south Florida coast. And the notice was datelined Washington, D.C., September 4th, simply signed, Moore. Wrongo. Wrongo. So on the 6th, the day after that, they sent out a notice to hang red and black storm warning flags on New Orleans water, and that's it. They're like, tell the fishermen to bring in their nets, tell everyone to anchor down, and there's going to be some storms, but it's just a tropical disturbance, so don't worry about it. I hate more. <laughs> so the day after that, September 7th, Klein, and this is uh, the guy that runs the weather station in Galveston. So he's the guy that Moore talks to directly to send out mm. news and um, notifications to Galveston over storm-related information. So Klein receives a complete reversal of the forecast in Galveston. He just like casually comes into work, and they're like, you're going to have to put up storm flags, and we have a problem. And uh, this was because the storm that... Moore was so certain would appear in Florida, just never showed up. Oh, and no. so they know that the storm is just lurking in the Gulf of Mexico somewhere. Yeah, it's not in Florida, it's somewhere else. Yeah, just everyone anticipating a horrible storm and nothing happens. As the day wore on, a distant roar was heard far away among clear skies. So it wasn't even cloudy yet, and they could hear just like a humming out in the distance. God. Winds picked up, and clouds were rolling in, and the waves were peaking, and there was a steady rain, and Klein battles just hordes of concerned sailors and harbormen and citizens, all asking if this was a dangerous storm. And so he's talking to Moore, and Moore is like, tell them that no, this is not a hurricane. <laughs> so Klein is going around just being like, no, it's just a tropical disturbance, while tears stream down his face. <laughs> So, so all the people who regularly work on the ocean come concerned to him, like, "Hey, yeah. man, are you sure?" And he goes, "Yeah, we're good. Yeah, just we're fine. Casual. It's the best. Bring in your nets. 
Yeah, it's like just bringing in some fun weather is what we're having. A disturbance of fun. And as the day wore on, people gathered on the beach to watch the waves because it was like, oh, so cool. Tall, tall waves. It's just, yeah. it's a stormy day, but the waves are crazy. So it's all watchable. I mean, it's not their fault because they're being told that this is not a dangerous situation. Right. It's just, you know, the waves are extra tall. So there's like yeah. kids chasing around in, in the waves. And yeah, there's not, I don't think there's typically a lot of waves in that part of mm-hmm. the ocean and the coast. Yeah. So. Line finally decides he's had enough. And he's just like, this is insane. I know for a fact that there is a horrible storm coming. And so he rides down the surf in a horse-drawn carriage. Awesome. (laughs) Like yelling to everyone to get to higher ground, yelling that it's dangerous. But he was mostly ignored because all this time there'd been no indication that there'd be any hurricane. So why would they believe this guy? Who most of them probably don't even know who he is because it's not like they have yeah. uh, weather like news or something. Like, That's the weather guy. It's hard not to look crazy on a horse drawn carriage. Yeah. People. <laughs> They're it's like, difficult. oh my gosh. 4 a.m. the next morning, they're awoken by the storm, capital S. And Klein peers out of his brick house that's almost directly on the Gulf to see that the city is underwater because mm. Galveston's its highest point is 8.7 feet above sea level. Oh, man. So, and, and the storm surge from this hurricane was 15 feet. So the city's underwater. There's no yeah. There's no dry land anywhere. So oh, man. Klein sends a cable to Moore when he wakes up at 4 a.m. and says, Gulf is rising rapidly. Half the city is now underwater. And we can talk about the actual storm, which is just heartbreaking. Ahoy, sailors. This is a time full of opportunity and change, and many people are changing their careers, starting fresh, or learning new skills. Coding is a career that anyone can learn with the right tools, and Treehouse has one of the best and most affordable online classrooms for you. Treehouse has rethought the learning process and built a proven system to get you the skills and knowledge you need to achieve your goals. I took a coding class for my engineering degree in college, and it went way over my head. Treehouse solves that problem with their courses because you haven't just watched a video, you learned, practiced, and absorbed a concept. Aside from these courses, you can choose to build a portfolio, create a network, and land your dream job with their bootcamp-style tech degree program. Plus, they have courses for any skill level, yes, even true beginners. Get 50% off your first month as a Lighthouse Lowdown podcast listener through the special discount link teamtreehouse.com slash sign up underscore code slash podcorn courses. I will include the link for your special 50% off discount in my show notes. Your new skill or career awaits. The height of the storm was on the evening of the 8th. So they noticed this tropical storm in August. Like August 27th is when Cuba was like, oh, we got something cooking out there. And they get hit on the 3rd with a tropical storm and then notice directly after that, probably still on the 3rd or the 4th, that it's turning into a hurricane. And it's now the 8th. And it had been days with no... So days of flooded island. Totally. No, just days of, of time that people could have gone inland in Texas. Oh, and yeah. instead, they didn't get a chance because everyone was telling them that it was fine. Like, how, how am I supposed to? If someone told me there'd be a hurricane later today and it's sunny outside, I'd be like, well, we better buckle down. Like, but if nobody said anything, why would I believe this? Like, on the 7th, the, like the day of the storm is coming in, it's clear skies. So right. how would you yeah, ever Yeah, things know? are usually fine. 
so they're going to be fine, right? Yeah. So the poor in Galveston were the first to be ankle deep in water because all of the areas where they lived were in low marshy areas near, near boat wharves. They went to slightly higher ground, which is where the rich lived in stone mansions. So some of these survived because they were resilient. At some point, no land was left uncovered. So the only way to be safe was to be elevated. Mm-hmm. And so mansions became just filled with people from every walk of life just trying to survive. And I have some stories about that, but the winds were sustained at 130 miles per hour with gusts of 150. And these turned everything into weaponry. Like shingles were decapitating people. And oh my God. It's like pebbles were bullets. You know, like people were dying just by getting hit with debris. And so waves would come in and destroy one row of houses. And then they would take all the debris from this row of houses and beat it against the next row of houses. So wait, so this is going on 4 a.m., everybody's underwater. This is all within the same day. All this is developing? It's like... Water's rising. It's like a full 24 hours of the storm coming in. So the height of it was in the evening, but they were awoken by it in the dead of night. Right, right. Harry Clyborne was seeing all of this happening, and he had just bought a month's worth of groceries. So he's... (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I'm all set. He's got his Cheetos. (laughs) So he flees his house because the water's rising and takes refuge in the tower. And a train that had been passing through, because there was a train, remember? um, Yeah. (laughs) So this train is abandoned because the water's coming in and you can't just keep the train going. They see a storm. And so it unloads all of its passengers. There's like 200-something people on this train. And they unload it on Bolivar Peninsula. And Harry opens the door, even as the floor is covered with feet of water, he opens the door to the tower to let people in, just to keep them safe. People were piled in the lighthouse, two on each step, all the way up the spiral of this 117-foot lighthouse. As the water's rising in the lighthouse, it's like, 30 feet of water inside this lighthouse people have to climb and they're standing on each other's oh, shoulders man. and people are sick because they're so scared oh and, man and people that is not a lot of space i know and they're like screaming because they're terrified yeah. and they're like yelling out to see if their loved ones are somewhere in the lighthouse yeah they said people were screaming in pain from a muscle strain of holding people up and hanging on so tight because the lighthouse is just swaying and trees are uprooted and being like beat against the lighthouse with the waves like battering rams so this is essentially it's like a stairwell right yeah just full of people mm-hmm. no windows water's coming in the bottom water is rising yeah hours are passing like a day they're trapped in there like that oh. i know <laughs> probably no light after so at this scary. point, at some point, the door to the lighthouse was pinned closed, so they can't let anybody else in. Like I'm sure they would have, but I think there was over 120 people in that lighthouse at that time. Harry saved a lot of lives just by opening this lighthouse to people. And a nearby, this is another note uh, from a haunting of Galveston, that a nearby orphanage, there was a boys' orphanage and a girls' orphanage, and the boys' orphanage was destroyed. And in the girls' orphanage, they're taken on water and like they were seeing that this was going to go poorly. So the nuns tied the, their groups of little girls all to each other and then to the nuns with a clothesline just to keep them all together as the water was coming in. Yeah. And they found them the next day like this, all dead, just connected with clothes wire. These poor nuns. And I read the sad thing that the nuns... Nowhere to go. Yeah. Right? 
It's like they just drown. They got like sucked out of the the orphanage just by water currents and. The nuns wore so much clothing that was heavy wool that mm. there would there was no way for them to stay afloat in the first place. Oh my god! And so, <laughs> their anchor chains. The nuns took down the kids. Mm. Not, I mean, you can't no. swim for hours. I mean, I, no. I, I've never seen anything like that type of storm. The kids, but, they oh, they wouldn't scary. have survived anyway. But it's just tragic. Wow. Fifty people took refuge in Klein's brick house because he was on the um, the rich area. And so he had a, he was taking people into his house like crazy. But it was uh, knocked from its foundation by the waves, and all but 18 of those people lived, which didn't include his wife, who was pregnant with their fourth child. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's wow. just like devastation everywhere. A brick house was taken off of its foundation. Yeah. Oh, I'll post a picture in my sources, but... Afterwards, 18 died in the house. As 18 survived out of the 50 that were inside. I know. So he lost his wife, but there was a note that his three daughters did survive. Yeah. So okay. That's good. There's a picture of a house that it's just like you took a house and you put it on its corner, stuck in the sand, and they have a picture of it with three boys standing in the doorway, just like in the aftermath of the storm. Yeah. But the storm picked up an entire house and just stuck it in the ground at an angle. Um, wow. I'll post it because it's it's a crazy picture to look at. So at the lighthouse, they're using buckets to collect water from the lantern room to give to the people that below because they were in there for a day. And the water they found was salty from where they were collecting the water at 130 feet in the air. So it's like water from the Gulf. Mist blown. Yeah, yeah it was being projected up all the way to 130 feet in the air. Wow. There were stories of waves rolling down the street, and one of them was carrying a grand piano at its crest. <laughs> Which, like, is supposed to show how strong the waves are, that it would lift a grand piano to the very top. But also, it's funny that someone's like, oh, yeah, I saw a grand piano surfing down, down the main street. <laughs> That'd make some really cool artwork. <laughs> They'd be like, this is not believable. Labeled as abstract art. Another nun... Sarah hung out of the window of a building and would snatch up people that were floating by and like split the floor of the building into two halves, people that she collected that had passed away and people that were still alive. And she passed away after this due to yellow fever, which they got hit with yellow fever after this whole thing happened. <laughs> One, two. And a lot of people say they hear Sarah or see her in the stairwell of that building often. So another haunting note. Sarah's like, I reliving this moment. Keep saying wow. I, I don't, this is, <laughs> it's oh. just chaos. And this whole time I'm thinking about stupid more, just being like, mm, Cubans. It's like, ew, you. It's horrible. So a couple stone mansions survived. Uh, and I talked, I mentioned that these were filling with people from every walk of life. So mm. the people that lived in the mansion were just taking in anyone. It was just this point of devastation where it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you're doing. You already know that there are just thousands of people dying. And in the morning, when the sun rose, came salvation. And so the lighthouse was finally able to empty of people. They came out and there was just a pile of bodies around the lighthouse of people that had tried to get in but couldn't because of the storm. And they had been, like, stripped of all their clothes from the wind and the rain. And so they came out 
after surviving all of this and just saw devastation. Oh my god. And all bridges and ships had been destroyed, and so there's no way off the island. So they needed help from inland after a day or two. Yeah. And Clyborn breaks into his personal store that one month of groceries he had bought and just fed everybody that had stayed in the lighthouse. It was over 120 people. He just fed them with the food that he had bought for himself. So everybody in that lighthouse that survived was from the train. Mm-hmm. Plus the keeper. Yeah. And the evening after the hurricane, he climbed the steps and lit the lighthouse, which was like a huge deal to everyone in Galveston to look out and see that the lighthouse was still running after a horrible ordeal. Because it was kind of a signal that in the face of everything, there was something that still worked right, you know? Yeah. In this storm, over, it was like ten to 12,000 people died, which was a third of Galveston's total amount of people. Yeah. And it's the most deadly natural disaster still in U.S. history. All because somebody decided not to take Cubans seriously. <laughs> that is a, that's a horrible way to go. That's just... That sounds super scary. And over a period of time, it's not, I think of storms as a couple hours, yeah. you know. In... This is like two days of just oh. just wreckage. And there were stories of like people being dismembered by debris. Yeah. And then there's like a woman, they found her long hair got caught up in a tree and she was found mm. hanging there from her hair, you know, just like, it's just like you're in hell. Yeah. It's like an act of war, like a terrorist attack or... Right. Wow. So in the aftermath, men began gathering bodies and burying them at sea, which is just bringing them out and throwing them in the water. But the current was bringing them back into shore. So they eventually built huge like funeral pyres and just burned all the bodies. Thousands of people. And many people urged the this once huge prosperous city to be abandoned, but it was rebuilt with a six-mile storm wall, which made sure that any hurricane of that power, which we see later, never has that kind of... Uh, effect on the yeah. island again and this is when they get hit with yellow fever epidemic <laughs> so in the aftermath and cleaning up and and getting aid then there's yellow fever yeah it's like of course why not because sure sprinkle yellow fever on top a little note that i saw in the new york times archive um that the front page it was 13 years later so it wasn't directly a result of this but april 16th 1913 the front page says more dismissed as weather chief president oust the bureau head who sought a cabinet place and it says quote professor willis l moore who has been chief of the united states weather bureau since 1895 was dismissed from that office today by president wilson serious charges against professor moore's conduct of the weather bureau have been referred to the department of justice with a view to proceedings in the federal courts so moore got what was coming to him at least yeah kind of i mean it's not good restitution for 12,000 people yeah. dying but at least yeah. he was discovered as being recognized right yeah. as being a dad. Fifteen years later, August 17th, in 1915, another hurricane comes. And Harry is still in charge of this lighthouse. <laughs> and he oh, has a... Poor guy. I know. He's he didn't like, retire? Good lord. No, he stayed... That's a sign to retire. ...long after that. It's just kept on keeping... You know, he wasn't keeper of the lighthouse for long before this first hurricane. You'd think that would have made him quit. But people need their Harry Clyborne. He saved 120 people and then yeah. fed them all with his own food. Best man in our hearts. So another hurricane. Yeah, and I don't have as much information on this one because they have this storm wall, and it dampened the 
intensity of the storm for the people that lived there. I think the hurricane was also Category 4, but only 500 people died in this one as opposed to 12,000. So they did go with the storm wall. (laughs) Measly 500 deaths. So this time, the Weather Bureau began a notice seven days early. They at least learned from their mistakes. 15 years earlier than that and a week before this they were um, anticipating the storm and were having people evacuate the area outside the storm wall were decimated with like 90 percent of buildings destroyed so the storm wall is doing its job no kidding sorry if i'm bumming you out no i mean it's sad it's uh (laughs) obviously it's very sad and even like 500 deaths seems it's hard to say it. It's 1915, but it seems like nothing compared to 12,000, was it? The, yeah. It's just, it's so hard. And I've also been to Galveston Island mm-hmm. and hanging out on the beach, but um, no no considerations of that as just visiting, thinking about what might have happened. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm never on the coast, so I don't think about that type of thing. But that is, uh, it's a storied area. That's yeah. It's really sad. Been beaten down and came back to life, but there is nobody left alive who's been through the storm. And so the stories mm-hmm. of what happened are just kind of whatever we have. Yeah. During the storm in 1915, uh, 60 people take refuge in the lighthouse. Uh, I don't know if this was from a train or whatever, but just half. He's like, I know the capacity of this place. Everyone. Like, we have we have room for. Double yeah, this. they're like, come on in, we got plenty of space. The assistant keeper, I can't remember what his name is, Mr. Brooks, he was in the lantern room the entire time and said that the tower would sway 12 inches either way, and the vibrations of the lighthouse being beaten by the storm uh, made the lantern impossible to turn on its own. And there was an article in the Galveston Daily News when it happened that talked about this, and I don't know if I want to... It's like two paragraphs long. I don't know if I want to read it directly or just summarize. Go through it. Okay. Quote, at 9.15 o'clock Monday night, the mechanism which rotates the lantern was put out of commission by the furious swaying of the tower. And from that time until 10 o'clock, Mr. Brooks turned the big lamp by hand, clinging to the crank and working away as best he could while the wind rose higher and higher and the tower ever swayed wider and wider in its teeth. And then it said, at 10 o'clock, the vibration was so great that it became impossible to keep the lamp rotating at all. So Mr. Brooks accordingly trimmed the mantles of the lantern and left it burning. Descending to the foot of the tower, he found another hazardous task awaiting for him. The water had risen until it was neck deep over the tower floor, and the big iron door, which gives entrance at the base, had been dashed open by the wind. It became necessary to get the door closed to protect the tower from the wash of the current, and Mr. Brooks, armed with a rope, essayed to make fast barrier. He was badly battered and bruised by the wind and waves before the the task was accomplished, but it was done at last. So Mr. Brooks was down there with a damn rope. Mr. Brooks is a badass. <laughs> Shutting the door as... After, after the hours of turning a crank. And he stands in the doorway of a hurricane. Yeah. Just getting beaten to death as he's trying to close it to protect everybody that's inside. It's just insane. It's so crazy. Go, Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks. I bet Harry Clyborne was just sitting up at the top like, mm. <laughs> He's like, I've done this He's before. He's like, get down there, Mr. Brooks. You handle it. I'm out. If you need help, I'll be upstairs. <laughs> Me and Virginia will be hanging out, reading a book. He's like, I hate you. So this storm took a larger number on the light station as like more than the first storm did. Round two. Yeah, so it destroyed the keeper's dwelling, the oil house, all fencing, and all of the outbuildings were destroyed. So the only thing that was left was the tower. Two years after this, the lighthouse is shelled by soldiers with three-inch guns at Fort San Jacinto. Jacinto? Jacinto? San Jacinto. It's a J, and we're in Texas. I'd say Jacinto, but I'm not from Texas. (laughs) 
So. I should have looked at the pronunciation list. I'm sure it's on there. But at the fort nearby on accident during a two-hour target practice. So it wasn't malicious. It just, like, happened. That is... Okay. <laughs> Oops. So one projectile tore a hole through the tower at a height of about 25 feet, and the other struck just outside the front yard gate of the assistant keeper's dwelling. So just... Stop blowing holes in my ship. So nobody was hurt, but Harry was shaken up and died shortly after that. Oh. I know. So we, we lost a true hero. How many lighthouses have been hit with cannons, though? Yeah. Especially in times of non-war. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of embarrassing. It's Probably because the army. it was really foggy, and there was a miscalculation in where they were aiming. So it was just like, it was an accident, but it's unfortunate. So I don't think we talked about the structure. So you said, oh, we did, but it's steel encased? It's a iron brick and had iron, an iron sheath on the outside. Okay. That yeah. was all welded together. Brooks takes over the lighthouse after Harry's death and wins awards in 1918, 1920, and 1922 for best kept station. So he was doing his due diligence just for Harry. While the Galveston Jetty Lighthouse is being built, which stands today, the light was changed in the Bolivar Point Lighthouse from a constant second order to a flashing third order. And that's just because now they had more manpower and they didn't need so much power on this one lighthouse. Mm. And uh, they also had to change it because I think the Galveston Jetty Lighthouse was going to be a constant light instead of a flashing light. So they changed changed the Bolivar Point one. That was in 1907. And the jetty didn't become operational until 1918, over a decade later. And in 1930, the candle power was increased in the Galveston Jetty Lighthouse. And they planned to take the Bolivar Lighthouse out of service because of the Depression, and they just didn't need two lighthouses if one of them was going to be functioning really well for everybody. Public outcry halted taking Bolivar Point Lighthouse out of service for three years, but ultimately went dark on May 29, 1933. So that's the end of the lighthouse being lit. In 1947, the lighthouse is sold for $5,500 to the Boyt family, which is like, I would pay $5,500 for a lighthouse. <laughs> $5,500, I would absolutely... Yeah, but in 1940? Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, now that's a lot. Well, in the 1800s, they were spending $40,000 on building this lighthouse. It's a deal. It's like when they sell really, really nice things at an estate sale or like an auction. Like um, the opening of Phantom of the Opera when they're like selling stuff, oh, from, yeah. the um, selling stuff from the opera house. And it's like, you're selling it for what? Anyway, sold to the Boyd family who still owns it today. And actually, a fun note, the great-grandmother of this family was the last person to come into the lighthouse in the storm of 1915. So this family wouldn't exist without this lighthouse. Isn't that crazy? It is. So it's off-limits to the public because of just major decay. There was no upkeep on it after it was taken out of service. It was handed down through government agencies, lastly, with a Coast Guard, but they didn't do any maintenance on it because it wasn't in service. And it's all iron, so over time it's just gone to crap. And a 2018 analysis showed that it needed $2.5 million to restore it. And so the Boyt family is trying to raise this money so that this lighthouse can be open for everyone to come take a look. And I'm going to put the link to their donation website in my show notes in case anybody is feeling like they want the Bolivar Point Lighthouse to... So it's not, you can go to it now, but you can't go inside? Is that accurate? It's... So they own the light tower and also the keeper's dwellings, which both are still, they, I think they live there. And so it, it's surrounded by wire fencing that says it's private property. But I did watch a video of a guy who wanted to take drone footage of it. And when he drove up and saw that it was private property, he was like, oh no, like I'm not going to be able to get up there. And she walked out of the house and was like, come, come on in. You, 
come take a look. So they're very friendly people. That's cool. So gaining recognition for the Bolivar Point Lighthouse, the U.S. Lighthouse Society, USLS, <laughs> stopped by on their 14-day Texas-Mexico tour, and they were planning to visit 30 lighthouses beginning in San Antonio and ending in Cancun. So they stopped by this lighthouse just to raise recognition and mm-hmm. hopefully get more donations to try and rebuild it i mean two and a half million that's it's gonna be a feat it's a little bit of money but maybe over time uh they did say that the lantern room is the biggest problem in that if there is another huge storm they're worried that it'll pop right off in the wind do you know what the renovations include do they did the assessment publish that information i didn't look into it so i wonder if it's you know like rebuilding it fully rebuilt Yeah. yeah I'm sure that maybe the brick would be okay, but all of the iron staircase and lantern room and all of that would probably need to be rebuilt completely. I saw a picture of the inside and it just looks creepy because everything's deteriorated and there's the rusting streaks all down the walls and everything. Yeah. Well, and that's turned it black on the outside is the yeah. iron sheath that's mm-hmm. in the salty wind. The yeah. salty sea air. I, can't, I don't know what year, but they have a buoy tender which is a large, I think it's like a 175-foot boat that takes oh. care of buoys that are in, right. the, in the bay. Tends to them. Yes, but they named it. They named one of them the Harry Clyborne, and it's still in use in Galveston. So That's nice. I know. I was like, ah. Your boy, Harry. <laughs> a couple notes on the hauntings, because Galveston's known to be pretty haunted due to all of this uh, devastation. <laughs> they, they shot a movie... In like 1970 or something, uh, My Sweet Charlie, I think the movie was called. I didn't make a note, but I remember reading about it. And while they were working on the movie, they saw strange shadows on the grounds or in the lantern room. They say that this is either the spirit of Harry Clyborne, just making sure everything's still tip-top shape, or uh, there's a rumor of a man that killed his parents on the grounds and then killed himself in the lighthouse. And people say they see him looking out from the light room at night. That's terrifying. And there's also stories of mysterious mists and fogs erupting from the lighthouse in bad storms. In storms or dense fog, many claim to see a beam of light still coming from the lighthouse. There's also stories that if you stand on the beach in Galveston, this is like anywhere, you can hear loud whispers like if you put your ear up to a conch shell Sinister. yes so yeah that's what i've got that is what i've got for the bolivar point lighthouse i want to go back to galveston now. i know i went um in high school with my drill team i just remember it being kind of a gross beach <laughs> <laughs> we weren't there for very long i didn't get in but uh i don't i don't have fond memories of the area but I could be swayed, yeah. especially because they have a bunch of like haunted bar crawls and haunted tours and everything nice. in the city. I would love to do some of that. Yeah, they did have Rainforest Cafe. It was pretty good. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> what a storied place, though. Wow. Lots of history. Very dark. Um, but the lighthouse it's, it was never the point of devastation. It was always the point of saving lives. So I think the lighthouse itself is not a dark area to be. But I think Galveston is probably haunted. Yeah, it's just taking on the load. That's where the deterioration came from. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I have a website now, which I'll link in my show notes, along with the donation website. And my website now has uh, a tab for uh, sources slash photos. So you can go and see pictures of what I talk about in my episodes and 
all the links to the information. Episode three. Episode three completed. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to my channel. Check out my website. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode of The Lighthouse. Later.